You're listening to Don't Be an Asshole, a spiritual guide, a podcast where we discuss life, music, and spirituality. I'm your host, Eric Tomure. Hey, it's time for episode two. All right. I really want to get into part two of the interview with Tim, so I'm going to be brief this week. Last week, I mentioned that I think all the major religions boil down to love God, love people, and just don't be an asshole. Mark chapter 12, verse 30, which I think is the central verse of the Bible, says to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And today, we will quickly break down what it means to love God with your heart. And when I say God, what I believe and what you believe may be different, but we can show the love the same way nonetheless. Heart equals compassion. And what I mean by that Well, I'll get to what I mean by that. Of course, there are ways to express love toward God directly, like worship and prayer. But I think that the most tangible way to do that, to love God, to show compassion to God, to love God with all your heart, is to love the people and the things that are a part of this created universe. Showing compassion to people goes against the self-preservation that is inherent to the human condition. Sometimes people are altruistic organically, Sometimes not. A lot of the time, it takes a concentrated effort. But it's worth the effort. Giving food to someone who is hungry, sheltering someone who is homeless. The first century church leader James said it this way, True religion is caring for widows and orphans. And Jesus himself was recorded as saying, Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. So even if you don't believe in a divine being, I think that loving our fellow man is a way to connect with the divine that is within us all. All right, let's get into this thing. Being that this is a brand new podcast and this is episode two, we don't have any sponsors. But that doesn't change the fact that I would love for you to check out one of the audiobooks I narrated called Bin Laden's Bald Spot and Other Short Stories. It's available on iTunes, Amazon, and Audible. So if you're an Audible member, maybe use one of your monthly codes or just pay full price. It's okay by me. If you're not an Audible member and you would like to get a month of Audible for free and the book I narrated also for free, then email me at dbaaeric at gmail.com. D-B-A-A stands for Don't Be an Asshole. So dbaaeric at gmail.com, put audible in the subject, and I will email you a link that you can go get a free month of audible and a copy of Bin Laden's Bald Spot and other short stories absolutely free. Okay, well, let's keep going. L.A. was a place where a lot of people of color, in particular African Americans, came to in droves in the 40s, 1940s and 1950s looking for work. They were trying to escape the challenges of poverty in places like Mississippi and Arkansas and Alabama and all these places where, one, the racism was in front of your face and crazy, but two, there was just not a lot of opportunities to make money. Yeah. And so coming out here was a, a gold mine. The problem was in the 60s, all of these uh, like auto manufacturers that were here started to close, the yeah. Fords and the General Motors. So they left this place destitute with a bunch of people with no hope and opportunity. Yeah, I saw, a, I'm narrating an audio book right now about the Vietnam War. 
like some statistic that had nothing to do with the book was just thrown in the middle talking about how the soldiers themselves weren't really overtly racist about skin color. The draft board definitely was because the fighting grunts in Vietnam, the percentage of black men who were grunts in Vietnam doubled the percentage of the black population in back home. A white kid would get drafted and maybe maybe be in the jungle, maybe be a clerk, whereas uh, double the percentage of blacks at home were in the jungle. So it was a two-to-one ratio. Wow. It was like, oh, your, your draft number came up. You're going to be shooting at the VC. Yeah, that's a systematic racism, you know, and it still exists today, obviously. I get pretty frustrated with a bunch of people who believe that systematic racism doesn't exist anymore. Obviously, I don't feel it the same way that you would feel it because, you know, I'm a white guy from the Midwest. I get better credit just by walking in the door. I tell people all the time that I don't want to give up my privilege. I realize it exists. What I want is everybody to have the same privilege I do. One of the things that didn't drive me out of ministry, I was already, already had a foot out the door. And I'll talk about that probably ad nauseum at a different time. I remember having a conversation with the minister through Facebook, which is just a wonderful way to have a, a conversation. He, he posted one of those things about how all lives matter. Mm-hmm. And so I did my, uh, my thing. I have this analogy about Thanksgiving and mashed potatoes. I don't know if we ever talked about it before. No. But no. Um, let's just say last year you were at the kids' table and now you're at the grown-ups' table. That's a big step up. Now you have more options ahead of you. You can, get, you can get your food first. You don't have to wait on someone to bring you the food. You're not separated anymore. You're at the big kids' table, but you're sitting at the foot of the table. Everyone's got turkey. Everyone's got stuffing. Everyone's, you know, and mashed potatoes are going around. You're sitting there and you're going, hey, pass those mashed potatoes. I like mashed potatoes. Okay, sure. Yeah, everyone likes mashed potatoes. And so they start passing around from the head of the table, you know, and you're like 20 people down. You know, this is like Thanksgiving. This is like cousins, uncles, aunts, everybody is there. Mm -hmm. And uh, mashed potatoes get almost to you. And then the person at the head of the table is like, hey, pass those mashed potatoes over here. And they just start going back around the other way. And you're like, you know, I really would like some mashed potatoes. Oh, yeah, of course. Everyone likes mashed potatoes. And so they start coming the other way. And before they get to you again, someone at the head of the table calls back them mashed potatoes. And so you still don't get your mashed potatoes. And finally, you lose your temper. Hey, I want some mashed potatoes. And everyone's like, whoa, whoa, how dare you? How dare you hit the table? How dare you do this? They say, honey, everybody likes mashed potatoes. And you're like, yeah, but I still don't have my mashed potatoes. And that's what, when people say all lives matter, it's just like that. You finally get your seat at the table, but you're still not getting your freaking mashed potatoes. And everyone's like, well, everyone, obviously everyone likes mashed potatoes. Yeah, I like mashed potatoes. And so the guy comes back at me with, he's frustrated with me because I'm, you know, not buying into the all lives matter because all lives do matter. That's the point. Yeah. All, he tries to get spiritual with me. He says, Eric, all lives are equal at the foot of the cross. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, they are. Great point, Reverend. Why don't we keep fighting until all lives are equal walking into the Bank of America? And that's the last time I ever talked to that guy. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like I'm right, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like, and I don't understand the struggle, obviously, but I feel like that's kind of how the struggle looks. It's like you're sitting at the table and 
people are telling you you can have it because every it's America, it's a wonderful country, it's great, but they're not giving your your damn mashed potatoes, you know. And so, man, it's, I know that's you know all analogies fall apart eventually, um, but yeah. that's I, kind of how I view it. I think an, uh, that's a great analogy. I might borrow that one from you because that that one really broke it down for me. Um, another one that I I heard is imagine. You know, you see all these folks who say, save the dolphins, mm-hmm. or dolphin lives matter would be another way of saying that, right? Right. Well, when they're saying that, they're not saying that the the sharks or the seals or the otters don't matter. They're saying that we may just need to pay a little more attention to these dolphins right now because something is happening to them at a rate that could be detrimental to them and something's happening that is detrimental to them in the immediate. Yeah. And so th- it's not saying that the others don't matter. They absolutely matter. It's simply saying that something needs to change so that these um, dolphins matter in the same way that you are treating these other um, uh, otters or seals or sharks or uh, whatever it may be in the ocean. And right. so that is kind of what the argument of the folks who are saying Black Lives Matter is the problem is that argument has been lost in this argument someone made up one day saying, well, all lives matter. Why are you saying only black lives matter? That's not what they're saying. Right. They're saying that the they feel like the black lives don't matter with the all lives. We want all lives to matter at the same equal space. But that argument has been lost because people are say, are taking it and creating a narrative that's not actually the narrative. And it's hijacking the narrative. It's actually when I sit back and I look at it as someone who researches and, and tries to like really look at all of the arguments before I start like drawing conclusions, I can see how someone on the other side could feel that way. And especially with the landscape of media right now, you if you have stories being told to you over and over again. Yeah. And that's what your brain is hearing. It's like a, a record that you've heard a bunch of times, eventually it's going to be stuck in there and it could become your story. And that's how social, yeah, your story. Social media only gives you the things that you're used to seeing. You like a few things, next thing you know, that's the only stories you see. You know, so people see things from certain news outlets or certain websites or certain people in their news feed and that's all they're seeing. They're not seeing anything else. And so there's no balance there. It's just, it's frustrating. They're not even willfully ignorant, but it's there's just something that's not adding up. It's not connect, the dots aren't connecting, you know. I don't think there's been a day that I've been alive, and I've been here over forty years. I don't think there's been a day that I've been alive in my awareness since I was probably a toddler, where I felt that the folks in power, who were majority white males, would look at somebody that looked like me and think that my life really mattered. Man, I I can't say. I honestly feel like if I were to be shot or killed, I would be looked at even as hard as I've worked. Oh, it's just another black man. There's been this culture that's been created and it started in slavery in this country where someone that looks like me, life does not matter as much as someone who's comes here from European descent. That's the story that's been told. It's not a true story, but it's a story that's been told. And when you, the idea and the word racism 
is institutional. Mm-hmm. It, it, so there's a difference between prejudice and racism, and oh, that yeah. gets confused. And, and since the institutions control things, I think that's what a lot of folks don't understand, is that most of the time, black folks, and in particular, someone like me, a black man, is just wondering, when I walk in the room, will I be given any opportunity? And once you know that you are, it kind of takes all the stress off. But that's every single door that you walk in. Right. The bank, the grocery store, the restaurant, et cetera. And because the media paints a certain picture off of certain things that happen. And there's a whole story behind that. Oh, the gangbangers or, oh, they're, they're not to be trusted. They're deceitful. They're thugs. They're robbers. They're this or that. Well, that's not the true story. And some of the stuff that folks are saying, they need to look at the history of things. If people are caught up in socioeconomic challenged places, there's a high chance that crime and other things are going to hit a large pop and part of the population. And they say things like, look at all the murders happening. They're just killing each other. Well, hell, they don't, they're only surrounded by each other. Who else are they <laughs> going to commit these crimes against? They're not in Beverly Hills doing it. They're doing it in South LA. Yeah. When, when I was thinking about hitting the table, demanding my mashed potatoes, and then everyone freaking out, the thing that hit my head was Baltimore. You know, because I grew up, I keep saying, you know, my wife is going to kill me if she keeps hearing this. I grew up in Oklahoma in the 80s, in the in the 90s, I started seeing some things. And I was in my 20s, I was like, why are they destroying property? Why? And th- I think a lot of people are still there. I finally crossed a threshold, especially with Baltimore, because even then I was like, yeah, there's there's injustice. These things shouldn't be happening. But why are they destroying stuff? And then I was sitting down with a friend of mine, and he told me what he thought, and it just made so much sense to me. Uh, watching this riot happen, um, a riot might not be the right word, but um, this thing that was happening in Baltimore, thing is, for weeks leading up to that, they were doing peaceful protests, and nobody paid any attention. It wasn't until someone slapped the table and demanded some mashed potatoes that the news was like, oh, there's something happening in Baltimore. Maybe we should give these guys some mashed potatoes. You can do everything the right way, you know, and I get so sick of people who look like me saying, well, they should, you know, they should do it the way Martin Luther King Jr. did it. Peaceful. Well, they shot his ass. They confused Dr. King as this, this, they turned Dr. King into something he was not. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't confuse his idea of not using guns that he wasn't very radical. Dr. King was more radical than Malcolm X. If you really studied him and the difference between what is happening now and Dr. King's era is it was a different time and a different organization was needed at right. the time. There were still people who were just as ready to fight in a more aggressive way in terms of the physical part. But Dr. King had folks, including himself, sitting at lunch counters and refusing to move or uh, getting on buses and taking rides through areas where your life was in danger or standing in the face of the enemy who's holding a gun on the other side and also breaking the laws, as you saw in Selma, uh, of which were racist laws during the Jim Crow era. So they confuse that and they go back to 1963 when he made a speech, I Have a Dream, and they erase everything else that he said. Right, and that's, that's right. He broke laws for the greater good, and we got people now who are looking at laws like, well, these people are breaking the law. 
Well, there's always been bad laws, and bad laws don't change until someone says enough. Mm -hmm. These laws don't help anybody. These laws are racist. These laws are evil. These laws are immoral. Whether it has to do with race or not, immoral and wrong laws are immoral and wrong. You got to stand up, and you have to break that law. And so when people are like, well, that guy shouldn't be taking a knee. He's dis, you know, he shouldn't be taking a knee. Oh, what are you wanting to do? He's being more peaceful than anything I've ever seen, ever. Like, like you said, he was so radical. Um, and he also, talking, going back to the capacity for good and evil, we've made him a patron saint, but he did bad things as well. And as soon as anyone on the conservative evangelical white side of the spectrum hears about like the affairs and things he had, well, then they want to like demonize the man. I'm like, you cannot throw out the good works because of a couple of bad things either. So, um, but he had a great capacity for good. He was a man who did wonderful things, but the systematic racism of the day still murdered him. If you can't go around looking at people who are trying to create change and go like, well, you should do it like that guy. It's like, well, he got killed. You know, just like uh, the the guy, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now, who, who told the police in the car that he had a gun and they shot him. And his girlfriend filmed the whole thing. And Philando Castile's his name. Castile. All of it broke my heart from Ferguson all the way till what's happening now. But that thing right there with Philando, I was like, oh my God, how can something like that happen? You know, he's like, hey, he didn't pull it. He didn't say, oh, I got this, you know, and pulled it out. You know, like, oh, I got a gun. He was like, I want to let you know I'm licensed to carry a firearm and I have one in the car. Because they always ask, do you have a weapon? He could have just said no. But he said, yes, I do. I have a license to carry. And he got shot for his trouble. There's people who I grew up with, whom I love and respect, who believe that systemic racism no longer exists. It existed in the 60s, but it doesn't exist now. And they're very smart about the way they uh, describe their argument. But just because they moved from the kids' table to the grown-ups' table, they still ain't getting their mashed potatoes. In the 50s and 60s, Everyone had to sit at the kids' table. It doesn't mean systemic racism is over. It's easy to think that because you have a media that wants to paint a certain picture. They tell a certain story, and that story then gets bought. Mm -hmm. You have sensationalized media that doesn't cover all sides of the media. They cover what they want to cover and they tell the story they want to tell. Mm -hmm. If that wasn't a case, then uh, MSNBC, Fox News, or any of these other outlets wouldn't have a platform. Um, The news media covers the the media um, depending upon the network based on what their bottom line is because all of these companies are owned by a CEO who has a business bottom line. It's not about... This, this is not 1960s and Dragnet and the detective saying just the facts or an inverted pyramid style of reporting. And I want to tell people, they may think it's a long time ago, but how much have we healed when I saw something yesterday that said, started with the black code law that was started in 1865 when all of a sudden slavery was supposed to end. In 1922, 
They were giving out licenses issued in the state of Missouri, very close to Oklahoma, which provided the holder the legal right to hunt and kill African-Americans. The name of that license was the state of Missouri N-word hunting license, like they were animal game. So this was in 1922. This is a little less than 100 years ago. And we've progressed But all of a sudden, in less than 100 years, we're all supposed to be kumbaya and no one that looks um, African-American or a person of color is 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 they don't have any problems anymore. Everything's equal footing. In less than 100 years, we're going to solve the challenges left over of chattel slavery in America, violent slavery in America, and that everything's kumbaya. That is what the biggest problem is, is that Mm -hmm. no one wants to deal with America's ugly history. And until we look it in the eyes and start to heal together, it's going to be some of the same things. It felt like after the 92 riots, and I said this actually uh, in one of the ORL uh, religious leaders meetings, that it felt like people just stuck a big Band-Aid on racism and like, oh, we solved it. It's over. It's done. But no one ever irrigated the wound. No one ever took the bandage off and cleaned it until like, and then in Ferguson and everything that's happened since then, it's like the whole world just exploded. I mean, things have been happening, obviously, but it wasn't national news. People weren't forced to look at it. And then all of a sudden people are forced to look at it again for the first time in a long time. And it's like, it never went anywhere. You put a bandage over a dirty wound. By the way, um, he mentioned our office here at USC, the Office of Religious Life, also known as the ORL. Some of the great work that some of the folks are doing here is there are some clergy folks and some folks not in clergy who are working together to try to see what they could do, at least from the perspective of a college campus, to try to assist the students who are dealing with all of the stressors of the outside world, some of which we're talking about today. Um, and I'll just address what you said about a Band-Aid. Well, we know a Band-Aid is only a temporary assistance to something that really needs true healing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with a Band-Aid, you need to take it off. It needs to be right in the, that, that injury, that cut needs to be right in the sun and get some, some of that uh, oxygen and sunlight to really help it to, to mend, which means you have to put it right in the, in the light, right in the eyes of, of, of that which can help it. We've been Band-Aiding things in this country since its inception. And it's time to take some of those Band-Aids off That's right. and look each other in the eyes. And we need to have some real honest conversations and stop saying it's not my problem. Or what I see a lot of is the blame game. I hate to quote Jesse the Body Ventura because <laughs> for a number of reasons I won't talk about on here. <laughs> but uh, I will just say he said something that was really interesting and it caught my ears. He said, our partisan system in this country is acting like street-level gangs. You have, he called them the Rebloodlikens and the Democrips. <laughs> and they're both blaming each other for stuff. Sometimes one is blaming the other more, and sometimes the other one may be rightfully so for something that's happening. But they're not having real conversations, and it doesn't sound very democratic the way they're behaving. And the leadership in, in some of these groups, you, you, you got to challenge what's happening right now. And definitely, and I'm not saying, trying to go on down some blame the Republicans or the Democrats. Oh, I'm no, just simply yeah. saying, this is our, this is the, the two main groups, the two main parties in our country. And they have a lot to do with 
all the decisions made, including the stuff we're talking about now around um, race relations or just unity of man or just some people say there's no unity of man because of the stuff you talk about in the show about people being uh, pricks or a-holes. Um, but, yeah, maybe we don't get along about everything, but we can agree to disagree and just kind of figure out how do we don't mm-hmm. drive each other where we want to th- choke somebody or hit somebody or just be crazy and we need to be educated like i saw a video the other day of this man who this lady had a permit at a park in chicago and she was wearing a puerto rico shirt yeah i saw and that he's like flipping out about that he's intoxicated and he's not educated that puerto rico is a part of the united states you yeah. have a governor hello and, and whether she, she was wearing a puerto rico or a mexico shirt so what this is this land is the land of people who have of immigrants, yeah. whether it's several generations back for you, or in my case, probably my ancestry, I wouldn't say it was immigrants, they were kind of forced here. Yeah. But the point is we're all here together and we got yeah. to figure that out. That's anger-inducing to see that kind of just hatred for no reason. or I mean, any hatred. I cannot stand it. Hell, I've been with that new Mr. Rogers movie coming out. I've just been like watching Mr. Rogers quotes and, oh, and video yeah. clips all the time. And... Now, and this is gonna, you know, make me sound. When I was a kid, I I didn't really like the Mister Rogers show. When I was a little kid, mm, it, interesting, it freaked me out. Um, <laughs> I, I like I liked Mister Rogers, but when he went to never uh, the pretend land or whatever it's called, the make believe the make believe land. Yeah, when the train went in and the music went weird, and uh, I don't know, man, I, I got freaked out by that. And then it went back to Mr. Rogers. I'm like, okay, this guy's cool. You know? <laughs> I'm like, all right, this, this guy's cool. But I didn't watch the show a lot. I got three boys who I'm like, you guys need Mr. Rogers right now. Right. Like, we need Mr. Rogers more than ever right. Uh, right now in this world. Yeah, you grew up in what used to be called South Central. And then you made your way to uh, the fruited plains of Oklahoma as a college sophomore, junior? Uh, I actually got there, it was after the football season, but it was the second half of my sophomore year of college. Okay. I got there early. I wanted to get there for spring ball and get prepared uh, for the upcoming season. At that time, I was a pretty highly touted junior college or community college, as we say now, uh, recruit from Santa Monica. So I went from Santa Monica College in the beach city of Los Angeles, which you know if you've been here, there's a very distinct difference between <laughs> Santa Monica and Norman, Oklahoma. Probably the whitest place you've ever been. What was that like? It was complete culture shock, and it took me a while to get used to it. What I had to, really, I used to call Norman Mayberry, because it was <laughs> like, what is this place? Like, I had folks not locking their doors to their cars or their houses. And you would never think of doing that in L.A. I don't know if they're still doing that in Oklahoma now, but that was back then. And the pace of life was like, I think I said earlier in New York is like, if it's 100 beats per minute, in terms of like, we're talking audio stuff now. L.A. was 85 beats per minute. Oklahoma was like 20 beats per minute in terms of the pace of life. Yeah, I Yeah, I wasn't used to like... The Bible Belt, too, where, like, a bunch of stuff was closed on Sunday except for, like, Sonic. Yeah. <laughs> I never, 
First of all, I'd never been to a place where you drive up and then you talk into the machine and then they walk out and give you food. We didn't have that, at least where I lived in L.A. at the time I was growing up. Well, they didn't want to walk outside. Or this gigantic store that's like all over now, but back then we didn't have it. Super Walmart. I even heard of Walmart before. We didn't have those stores out here. I was like, wait, you can buy like, you can buy like food and then you can get like hunting uh, stuff and then you can Camping get like gear, get tires. Everything is here. Like you, I mean, it was like, I guess like Costco slash Target fused together back then. Yeah, <laughs> and it was it was just so different. All right. Well, that was part two. Next week, part three, and the final part. And there's a lot more of this interview. We'll just finish out that conversation because it is so interesting. So thank you guys so much. And remember, kids, don't be an asshole.